listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. week we kicked off a brand new sermon series called Broken Heroes. And in the series, we're going to double click on some of the great heroes of the faith. Now, the danger in reading the Bible, and I've fallen into this trap as well, and I think this is how we read scripture by default, is we look back on the Old Testament and we see great men, right, like Moses and Abraham and David, and we see them as being kind of superhuman, like these superheroes who never did anything wrong. Anybody else identify with that sentiment a little bit? The truth is that when we turn to the pages of Scripture, what we discover there is that each and every one of these people were flesh and blood. They were like us. They were sinners saved by grace. The good news, though, is that weakness and failure don't prevent God from using His people. So the goal isn't to to drag the names of these saints through the mud, but rather to see them realistically for who they were. And in them, we get a glimpse of ourselves. So welcome back to Broken Heroes. Today we're talking about Moses' anger. Here's a a mini-biography of of Moses' life. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but just by way of reminder. Moses was from the tribe of Benjamin. And Moses was born during a very tumultuous period in the history of Israel. You may remember the Israelites spent a really long period of time in Egypt, in slavery, right? Uh, Jacob had all of these sons, and one of those sons, Joseph, ended up in Egypt for a, a period of time because his brothers had sold him into slavery there. And Joseph eventually rose to this position of great power and authority in the land, and By the end of the story of Joseph, all of the other brothers of Joseph, the sons of Israel, have come to Egypt, to that land, and they're living there for a while. But eventually what happens is there gets to be so many Israelites that the Egyptians, uh, they kind of start to to freak out because there's too many of them there, and oh my goodness, they're going to overrun us, and what are we going to do? So what do they do? Well, they enslave the Israelites. And Moses is born during this period of enslavement when the the Israelites are are exploited for their labor and put into uh, this position of of being slaves and and servants of the Egyptians. And it was actually so bad at this point that there was a law in place that said any Egyptian, not Egyptian, excuse me, any Hebrew boy born was to be killed immediately, like at the moment of birth. They were supposed to be thrown into the Nile River. Luckily, Moses' mother, she defied this edict, and she kept her son, she kept him alive, and she put him in this basket. You know how the story goes, Moses in the basket, puts him in this, this little woven basket, and she uh, waterproofs it by putting tar and, and pitch on the outside of it, and puts it in the river, lets it float down to, into the reeds in the hopes that somebody is going to, to discover this, this basket, is going to discover her child, and Moses will be saved. And this actually does Happen. Lo and behold, the daughter of Pharaoh himself discovers the basket 
and eventually Moses is raised in the household of Pharaoh. So Moses kind of has a, a mixed heritage. He is born an Israelite, um, and he knows this. It's not a secret to him. And yet he's raised in Egypt, as Egyptian royalty in Pharaoh's household. Moses had anger issues. And it wasn't just a once and done kind of thing, like, well, he's just this young buck and he has to get off, you know, blow off some steam and later in life he'll get better. We actually see this as being a recurring pattern throughout Moses' life. Again and again, these, these anger issues, they pop up, these outbursts. Now, we don't have time to go into each one in depth, but what I want to do is I want to walk us through three of these particular outbursts, three instances where we see Moses' anger kind of a, a bubbling up, bubbling up to the surface. And, and as I read through these, it, again, I'm not going to look through everything in detail, so I'm going to do a little bit of summarizing here. But as we do this, I want you to, to pay attention and see if you can detect this pattern of anger in the life of Moses. So the very first one of these I want to turn to, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Uh, this is going to be Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Exodus 2, beginning at verse 11, it says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. In other words, he killed him, then he hid the body. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Moses murdered an Egyptian. This is anger brought to its natural conclusion. And he was 40 years old when he committed the crime. His anger flared up, and, and we hear this story, and we can understand this, because it was an actual, you know, this wasn't just like he wanted somebody to, to, to switch the channel, like watch something different on Netflix. This was like somebody was actually being oppressed. There was injustice being committed here. And his anger flared up. He lashed out by committing murder. Moses killed someone. The next instance I want to look at from Moses' life is Exodus 32, verses 15 through 21. Exodus 32, verses 15 through 20, actually. We'll just read through verse 20. It says, then Moses turned, I'll give you a little context here first. This is up on Mount Sinai. So you may remember this is where the Ten Commandments, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments to give to the Israelites, right? Uh, but the thing was, Moses took so long while he was up on that mountain to come back down that the Israelites started to, to fear and, and get discouraged and to worry. And uh, they came to Aaron. You know how the story goes. They came to Aaron and they said, look, we don't know what happened to this guy, Moses. Uh, but why don't you make for us some other gods for us to worship? And we'll say, yeah, those are the ones that, that brought us out of Egypt. 
And Aaron does this, and he creates his golden calf, and so the people are, are singing and they're, they're dancing. Finally, Moses does come down the mountain. As he comes down, he hears the sound of singing, and he watches them dancing, and here's where our text picks up. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. So he's got the, the tablets that, that God has, has given to him with all the commandments. Tablets that were written on both sides, in the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, Joshua was Moses' assistant, kind of his first-hand man, right-hand man. Joshua heard the voice of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the noise of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Wow. It's a pretty strong reaction. Now, you can almost feel his anger bubbling over. Can't you, as, as you read this passage, smoke coming out of his ears as he throws down the tablets like Bobby Knight style, you know, chucking a, a chair across the, the gym. I was doing some research on this passage, and the consensus seems to be that Moses did not actually commit any sin here. Uh, his zeal was for the Lord. It was a kind of righteous anger. And yet, it's also clear his emotions got the better of him. God never explicitly told him to grind the idol into a powder, put it in the water, and make the Israelites drink it. That was on his own. And as a result of Moses' actions, God did have to fashion new tablets. So there were clear consequences for, for what he did. And Moses was 80 years old when this happened. So the first instance, he was 40 this one, he was 80. The third passage I want to talk about comes from the book of, of Numbers, chapter 20, verses 2 through 14. Numbers 20, verses 2 through 14. Uh, the Israelites are complaining. I should probably be more specific because they did that a lot. Uh, there was no water, seemingly for the upteenth time. They were frustrated and scared, so they did what people tend to do when they're frustrated and scared they blamed their leaders, but God comes to the rescue. He tells Moses and Aaron to speak to this particular rock. So they're out in the wilderness, and there's this rock, and he tells Moses and Aaron, look, talk, speak to this rock. I will cause water to flow forth. Problem solved. People will be able to drink. They won't be thirsty anymore. Problem was, it didn't play out that way because Moses' anger, his temper, got the better of him. Listen to Numbers 20, verses 10 through 12. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, 
to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Now, here's something I didn't know. This incident actually happens toward the very end of Moses' life. Right when we would expect him to have matured enough to get past this sort of thing. He died at about 120 years old. So he has his first outburst that we read of when he's 40, then 80, and now at 120. And instead of trusting God to fulfill his promise, Moses pridefully took the matter into his own hands. You may have noticed he didn't speak to the rock like he was supposed to do. What did he do? He walked up to it and, and he hit it himself, kind of expressing this position of authority, like this is all my doing. There's a pridefulness that's present there. You can tell by the way he's talking, calling the Israelites names, you rebels, and speaking harshly that there's some anger there. And the consequences are devastating. He doesn't get to lead them into the promised land. After decades and decades of dealing with this obstinate people, he just had it up to here. And he lets it rip. And as a result of his sin, he doesn't get to lead them into the land of Canaan. In fact, shortly after this, Moses and Aaron actually die within a stone's throw of the land of Canaan. Like just, they're, they're right there. Now, remember, this is the same Moses whom the author of Hebrews says he considered the reproach of Christ better, excuse me, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, who left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This is the same Moses who's listed in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, alongside men like Abraham and Noah. This is the Moses, the, the one who foreshadowed Christ in Deuteronomy 18. The, the, the one who Numbers 12, 13 says, was a very humble man, the most humble man who ever lived. Moses the brave, Moses the humble, Moses the prophet and leader, yes, but also Moses the angry. Moses the broken, and he struggled, and he wrestled, and yet God used this broken, forgiven sinner in powerful ways to accomplish his purposes. Anger is an interesting thing. It's harder to hide than other emotions, isn't it? If you struggle with jealousy, for example, you can hide that pretty well. You can go your whole life being jealous of someone and, and that other person may not know it. Other people around you may not even know it. You can struggle with lust, this desire, and other people may not know that either. You can keep that hidden fairly well too. But when we're talking about anger, it's really different, isn't it? It's more visible because it tends to erupt in outbursts and rage attacks and temper tantrums. When you're angry, people can see it, at least those closest to you. I mean, the best picture I can't get out of my head is Bobby Knight. He's taking that chair and he's throwing it across the, the court. 
Or maybe you think of a politician with veins bulging from their forehead. Anger just seems to take over, and when we start to see red, it's hard to unsee it. Take a look at this video clip, and you'll see what I mean. Captain Pilot! Boo! I'll be joy. School was great, all right? Riley, is everything okay? <sighs> Sir, she just rolled her eyes at us. What is her deal? All right, make a show of force. I don't want to have to put the foot down. No, not the foot. Riley, I do not like this new attitude. Oh, I'll show you attitude, okay? No, 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 stay happy! What is your problem? Just leave me alone. Sir, reporting high levels of sass. Take it to DEFCON 2. You heard that, gentlemen? DEFCON 2. Listen, young lady, I don't know where this disrespectful attitude came from. You want a piece of this, Pops? Come and get it! Yeah, well, well... Here it comes. Prepare the foot. Keys to safety position. Ready to launch on your command, sir. That's it. Go to your room. Now. Foot is down. The foot is down. Yeah. Good job, gentlemen. That could have been a... ...in like 0.5 seconds. Is that how it happens? Here's something else about anger. Venting doesn't actually fix it. Did you know this? We'll justify our anger oftentimes by saying, well, I just got to get this off my chest. I just got to, I got to vent to somebody, don't I? But an article from Psychology Today says this about anger. It says, anger doesn't automatically dissipate by being unleashed. We rarely experience catharsis. Venting it in words or actions doesn't make anger easier to manage. Often it only increases the intensity of the feeling. Anger often feeds on itself. Anger often feeds on itself. We know this to be true, don't we? Have you ever held a grudge against someone? Feels pretty good, doesn't it? It's weirdly kind of satisfying. We derive a sick pleasure from withholding love and forgiveness. We feed the fire and refuse to let it die down, rehashing and reliving the other person's wrongdoing until it's all we can think about. And it kind of feels good. Like we're justifying ourselves and we're making them pay for it. One pastor hits the nail on the head when he says this. This is profound. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the, to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king, a chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. In other words, when we revel in anger and rage, it's like drinking spiritual poison. Because we're destroying not only the other person, we're destroying ourselves too. 
Now, the Bible gives all sorts of warnings against anger. James 1, 19 through 20 says this, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Proverbs 15, 18 says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. But probably the most Damning prohibition against anger is given by Jesus himself in his Sermon on the Mount. Here's Matthew 5, 21 through 22. Listen closely to this. Jesus is giving this, this, this big sermon to a, a large group assembled on this hill. And he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This was well known. Don't murder. But I say to you, listen to this, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you hear what he's saying? He's putting anger and murder in the same category. Whoever gets angry, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to what? hell of fire. Have you ever called someone a fool? Or maybe a little less G-rated version of the word fool? I can't believe that guy cut me off. Fool? Why in the world would he post that on Facebook? Fool? How could she vote for that political candidate? Fool? How could the coach not play my kid? Fool? How could the ref miss that call? Fool? How can our culture be so unchristian? They're all a bunch of fools. How can my parents be so mean? Fools? How could my daughter get such bad grades? Fool? How can he not see eye to eye with my ministry plans? How could they imply that I'm a bad parent? How could he still think that I want his advice when all I'm looking for is compassion? Fool? 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 Jesus links anger to murder here because there's more than one way to kill a person. Physically, yes, it's the obvious one. It's tragic when it happens. But you can kill in other ways. You can cut someone down with venomous words. You can destroy someone in your heart through anger, fantasies, and bad attitudes. You can kill a relationship by withholding love, can't you? Here's what's at the heart of anger in, in all of its forms. A destructive desire to make someone else suffer and pay. In all forms of anger, there's a destructive desire to make someone else suffer and pay. Now, I know what you're thinking at this point. You want to say, hey, pastor... Uh, hold on a second here. Don't I have a right to be angry? Everyone needs to vent sometimes. Like, isn't there such a thing as, as righteous anger? Which sounds like a good argument. So you realize righteous anger can only come from a righteous person. To which I would ask you, are you holy? Are you perfect? To 
Despite our well-intended protests, the truth is that all human emotions, including anger, are tainted by sin and therefore need to be repented of. See, anger always violates the love command because it's impossible to love your neighbor as yourself while simultaneously wishing them harm. The best thing we can do with anger is confess it. Not bottle it up, as us good Stoic Scandinavian folk are prone to do, and not let it rip at the next family barbecue. Confession is the only thing that can dissipate anger because whenever we confess to God, what happens? Say it with me. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He takes it away. He wipes the slate clean. So we should what? What We should confess both to God and to the person we are angry at, say I'm sorry, and receive forgiveness. And how is God able to do this, by the way? Like, how is it that God can actually forgive our anger? Does He just ignore it? A lot of people think that's what forgiveness means, but not the way the Bible talks about it, not even close. Sin and anger, as we've seen, is a form of that, always has consequences every time because the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die for our angry hearts. But here's the amazing thing. God doesn't smite us down. He didn't punish us the way we deserved because Jesus willingly allowed Himself to be punished in our place. He died for our sins to forgive us, and to free us, to give us eternal life. See, at the cross, God poured out all of His wrath and fury on His Son, Jesus bore all of it in our place 2,000 years ago on a hill called Golgotha. And He took all of that hate and rage and anger and fury on the teeth, the spitting, the mocking, the jeering crowds, the taunts of the other criminal who hung there. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, the angry words you and I say to one another, the vengeful thoughts we can't unthink, the eye rolls which indicate our desire to just dismiss people, the harsh words. See, He bore our sins in His own body on the tree and absorbed every last angry syllable for us. It was our anger that pounded the nails, but as the prophet Isaiah says, by His wounds... We are healed, loved and forgiven by a God who shows mercy to broken, sinful people. And here's something important, something else. You are no longer a slave to anger. 
If your identity is in Christ, if you are a baptized, believing child of God, then what Paul says in Romans 6, 17, and 18 applies to you. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become what? Slaves of righteousness. He doesn't actually mean slaves here. He's not saying you're exchanging one kind of slavery for another. It's just his way of adopting earthly language to, to speak of the freedom we have in Christ. You're not a slave anymore. You see, Christians still struggle with sin, but we're no longer under the dominion of sin. And there's a huge difference. Instead, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can fight it because we serve someone else, the only sinless one, the only one truly capable of expressing righteous anger. Paul was right. Thanks be to God that our our outraged hearts are forgiven in Christ, that we are no longer captives. Instead, we are beloved children of God, not because we are heroes, but because Jesus is. Next week, we'll continue our Broken Heroes series by talking about Eve's unbelief in the Garden of Eden and how God uses her in a mighty way to be the mother of all the living. Hey, friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.